Now, as you're able, would you please remain standing for the reading of the word, which they will be done by Dustin. Today's reading comes from Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas season. Merry Christmas season. All right. We're past Thanksgiving, so no more gratitude. We're focused on presents now. All right. That's where we're, we're headed uh, from this point forward. Well, we are actually, we are in the season of Advent. We're entering into a time of Advent. And Advent is a, a time, it's, it's, you know, four weeks before Christmas. And so it's a time where we can prepare our hearts uh, to receive the message, to receive the, the gift of Christ. And so uh, really Advent really just means coming and it is a, a celebration of the fact that Jesus came into this world to dwell with us, to be our, our, as a sacrifice for our sins, to be the savior for us, for uh, forgiveness of sins and to enter into life with us. And so what a, what a joy that is. And so we wanna prepare our hearts to celebrate that Um, But we also want to prepare our hearts uh, for the eventual second coming as well. And so that's something we do during Advent is we acknowledge that Christ has come, the work that he has done, but also that he's not done yet and that he's going to return again. And so we look forward to that day. But how do we live in response to what he has done and where we're going? And so that's really what Advent is all about. Um, And so this year during Advent, we are going to be focused on this word Emmanuel. And this is one of my favorite words in scripture. It is one of the titles of Jesus. And it simply means God with us. And so the first time we see this title, it's in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, which Dustin read for us earlier. And it prophesies that this is what's going to happen, that the the virgin will give birth and he will be called Emmanuel. And then in Matthew chapter one, it points back to this truth. In verse 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Matthew, up to this point, at the very beginning of his gospel, at the beginning of his book, he, he writes the genealogy of Christ. And so he connects Jesus to, through his family line to uh, people like David and to Abraham. 
And he does this for a purpose that we're actually going to talk about in a couple of weeks. But, but the main reason is that both David and Abraham had received promises that were given to them that the Savior, the Messiah, would come through their family line. And so Matthew is trying to acknowledge that, that the promised one, the one you've been waiting for, he's here. And so then he shares a little bit of the story of the birth of Christ. And so he starts with, with Mary and Joseph and their story where Mary, who was pledged to be married to Joseph, um, that, that the, an angel came to her and said, hey, you're going to have a child. This is from the Holy Spirit. And this child is going to be the Messiah. It's going to be the Savior. And so she becomes pregnant and Joseph goes, um, what's happening now? Right, and so Joseph kind of panics a little bit and an angel needs to come to calm Joseph down and say, no, 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 this actually is from God. This is a good thing. And so uh, they, they uh, sure enough, they have the baby and all these things happen. You know, Matthew gives us a short description. Luke gives us a longer description. But Matthew says that, that all these things happened so that we could know that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God with us that he is the Messiah, that he is the savior. He is the one that they have been waiting for, that we desperately need and we desperately long for. He is God with us. And I want us to pause and just think about that title and that phrase for just a moment. God with us, Emmanuel. Because many of us, many of you in here, you're like me, you've grown up in church, you've been around church for a long time. And so this phrase Emmanuel, you're like, yeah, I know it's in Isaiah, I know it's in Matthew, Ryan, like I get it, God with us is cool, right? And yeah, you know, it's kind of a like, oh, yeah, it's nice, it's like, Emmanuel, God's with us, like that's, that's a good thing. But I want us to pause and reflect on this because, because I think sometimes we become numb to some of the truths in scripture. The longer we uh, go in our walk with Christ, we can become numb to these things. And, and this idea that God wants a relationship with us, that he wants to dwell with us, that he so desperately longs for us that he would send his son to step down from glory, to step down from the heavens, to come and live like one of us, to live a life like us, to be born in a manger so that he could pay the price for our sins, so that we could enter into perfect relationship with God in heaven for all of eternity. I mean, that's crazy when you start to think about it. Has anyone ever met an important person or, or seen a celebrity in person? Anyone seen, made a celebrity sighting before? Yes, we're not gonna go around and, and quiz you on who you saw. Um, but, but when we see celebrities, we tend to get excited because like, oh, they're kind of like us. I remember I was at Disneyland one time and, and my wife and I, we saw Hunter Pence who used to play for the San Francisco Giants. And I was looking and thinking, this Giants baseball player is at Disneyland just like me? We're basically the same. <laughs> and that was exciting to me. As a matter of fact, I, I get a little bit too crazy about celebrity sightings. I actually, um, a few weeks ago, I was in uh, Santa Clara to watch a 49ers game and, and stayed in a hotel. Um, and at the hotel, there was a family of one of the, the 49ers players. And so I, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the family and I'm thinking, should I go and talk to them? Like, should I take a picture with them? Because if so, then I can kind of say that I'm family with the football player, right? Like that's how this works. And so, you know, I want to be there by association, whatever it is. And, and so we just want to be connected. But here, here's the thing. Here's what makes these celebrity sightings, the important people sightings so, um, like, like so much fun is that typically when you think of important people, you think of someone who is unapproachable. Just uh, last night, I was watching a college football game and the coach goes on the field to do an interview and you know, everyone's celebrating the victory and all these things. And, and, and right behind the coach who's doing these interviews are, are these two police officers. 
And as soon as the interview is done, they escort him off the field back into the tunnel because he is an important person that a lot of people will want to try and approach. And so they're making him unapproachable. No, sorry, he's too important. You don't get to come to him. You know, the, the common players, you can go see them, but like the coach, like he matters. We need to get him off the field. And so when important people exist in our world, typically they are unapproachable. And so you take all that and then you think about God who is in glory, who is in majesty, who is the creator of all things, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And not only is he not unapproachable, and yes, I use a double negative there, but he so desperately longs for a relationship with us that he steps down to us to be God with us. How good and wonderful is our God. And this isn't just something that's like a, a cherry on the top. It's not just an added bonus. It's actually something that we desperately need and desperately long for. And so let's go back to Genesis chapter three because it speaks to sort of what happened to cause a separation. Because at one point, God was with his people in, in perfect relationship with them. They, they experienced his presence perfectly. And so in Genesis chapter one and two, we have the creation story. We see that God created man and woman and then he had this perfect relationship with them where Genesis three tells us that God actually came down and walked in the garden. And the implication is that he walked in the same way that Adam and Eve walked in the garden. And that this wasn't his first time walking in the garden that normally he would be there to walk with Adam and Eve. But on this particular day, Adam and Eve don't come out to greet him. They don't come to acknowledge his presence. They don't come to walk with him but instead they're hiding from him. And they're hiding from him because they've committed sin against him. See, God gave them one rule, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what they do, they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they did this because they begin to question God's word and then they begin to question God's goodness. And in doing so, what ultimately happened is they no longer desired the relationship with God. They just desired the things that God could provide. So instead of wanting God, they wanted his power, they wanted his wisdom, they wanted his knowledge, they wanted his authority. They wanted to be like God in a way they were never meant to be. This was their desire. This is what they wanted. And so they took and they ate from the tree. And immediately they realized what they had done. And so their guilt and their shame left them hiding from the very presence of God. And so God steps into this mess and he issues consequences for their sin. And then in verse 21 of chapter three, he says this. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is a really interesting moment because there is this, this punishment that takes place. And there's a lot of bad that we're seeing in Genesis chapter three, but there's also this incredible act of God's grace. And so the bad that we see is that sin has entered the world. That's the first piece of it. And so this is gonna lead them to be removed from the Garden of Eden. But when you look around and, and you pay attention to your life or the lives of those around you, everything bad you've experienced is a result of sin. 
So if you've experienced brokenness, if you've experienced loneliness, if you've experienced anxiety or depression or, or hurt or pain in any type of way, it is a result of what happened in Genesis chapter three. Is a result of sin. But also in the garden, they were removed from the garden. And so the, the bad here, and we'll get to this in just a minute, is that they were removed from the perfect presence with God. But the garden itself is not the prize. The reason they were removed from the garden itself was actually an act of God's grace. Because in the garden, there was also the tree of life. And God is saying, hey, we can't have them eat from the tree of life now because they're living in a state of brokenness. And that can't be fixed in the state that they're in right now. So God desired for us to experience something better, to experience the life he intended for us, life with him perfectly. And so we did, he said, you have to go away from the garden so that you can enter into life with me in eternity. This is part of the redemption plan of God. And so there was a blessing there, but in the short term, what they experienced and what they felt was exile from God. Now, this idea of exile, this is a, a theme that runs all throughout the Bible. And we as Christians, we experience exile in, in two ways. Every person in, in all of human history experiences some level of exile from God in this world right now. And so we see this with Adam and Eve here. We see this with, uh, with Cain in the very next chapter after he has murdered his brother that he's removed from God's people. We see this with uh, Ishmael and Esau who are not a part of the promised line that God has for them. We see this with the Israelite people who go and, and want to enter into the promised land but, but rebel against God before they do. And so they have to wander the desert for 40 years, living as strangers, exiles with no home. We see that even after they had entered into the promised land, that there are times where because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience, God removes his protection and enemies come and take over and make things miserable for them. And we see this ultimately with them being removed from Israel, removed from the place where the temple resides, where God's presence resides, where, where the worship of God is supposed to happen. And they're taken into Babylon and become exiles there. But we as Christians, for those who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we experience, yes, some level of exile from God, but as we enter into a deeper level of God's presence, not perfect, but a deeper level of God's presence, we also experience exile from this world. That Peter tells us that we are foreigners and exiles here and now because we're gonna live differently than the world around us. Daniel is a book that, that really is focused on how do you live as a stranger in a strange land? How do you live differently from the world around you that's not pursuing God while well, you are? And so we sit in this strange tension where we long for something more. We long for, to be in God's perfect presence again, but we're not there yet. And so we know we don't belong here, but we're also not where we belong yet. And so we're looking forward to that day, but living in the state of longing. The reality is that, that it's not just for Christians that we long for something more. As a matter of fact, I, I firmly believe that every person in, in the history of humankind has longed for something more. That God has put this longing for home, this longing for eternity, this longing for God deep inside our hearts. And what happens is when, when the world around us has this longing, they, they don't understand what it's for. They don't understand how to fill it. And so they look for all these different ways and all these different things. But you can see it. I mean, if you listen to music, if you watch movies, if you watch TV, like you can see there's this theme of longing for something more all around us. 
Look at what Dustin mentioned uh, this person a couple weeks ago, and she's probably the, the biggest pop star in the world right now. Her name is Taylor Swift. In one of her songs, she wrote this. said, Lord, what will become of me once I've lost my novelty? And later in the song, she says, my cheeks are growing tired from turning red and faking smiles. Are we only biding time till I lose your attention and someone else lights up the room? And so there's a deep sense of longing in the song. This is, yes, right now I have everything. I have all that I could ever dream of or ever ask for, but I know that at some point that's all gonna fade away. That at some point I'm not gonna be at the very top anymore. And will you just replace me with someone else? And then who am I gonna be when all of this is gone? Who am I gonna be when all of this is taken away from me? Where do I go from here? What do I do with this? Arguably the greatest basketball player of all time is a man named Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan, when he retired, the, well, I guess the second time, technically. Um, uh, we won't even count the third one though. But, uh, but when he retired the second time from the Chicago Bulls, he had six championships, he had multiple MVPs, he had the scoring title, he had all sorts of records. He had done everything you can possibly do in basketball. And so a few years ago, they made a documentary about his last season in Chicago. It was called The Last Dance. And during this documentary, they asked him, they said, hey, Michael, um, you know, do you, uh, like, are you satisfied with how your Bulls career ended, that you ended at the very top of the game? You ended with a championship in an amazing way. Are you satisfied with that? Or, or is there a little part of you that maybe wishes things had gone a little bit differently? And instead of just saying, yeah, I wish things had gone a little bit differently, this, this is the, listen to the wording he uses here. He says, it's maddening because I felt like we could have won seven. I really believe that. We may not have, but man, just not to be able to try, that's something that, you know, I just can't accept. For whatever reason, I just can't accept it. And so here is Michael Jordan, one of the greatest, not only basketball players, but greatest athletes of all time. I mean, every athlete would trade their career for Michael Jordan's career. Most every common person would trade their life for Michael Jordan's career and success and money and fame and fortune. And yet here he is saying, it wasn't enough. I needed more. I can't accept that we didn't get to seven. And I can guarantee you that if he had gotten to seven, you know what would have happened? He would have said, I can't accept that I didn't get to eight or nine or 10. This isn't just a Michael Jordan thing, by the way. Every, almost, th there was an article that I read that said, so many famous athletes who, who reach the tops of their career, they struggle in retirement as they watch their records being broken or championships being won or different things or people being compared to them, they struggle. It was said that Mickey Mantle um, at the end of his career that there would be nights where he would get drunk and he would go into his car on a rainy night and just sit in his car because the rain on his car sounded like fans cheering. Desperate for something more. Longing for something that just can't quite get their hands on. There's a French artist named Paul Gauguin and he was a, a contemporary Van Gogh and an influencer of Picasso. And he had a painting and this is what the painting was titled. It says, where do we come from? What are we and where are we going? He's asking the question that so many of us feel that so many people feel, what is this all about? So you said it here before that there's a God-sized hole in our hearts. And so often we try and fill that hole with so many other things and yet what we need is God. And so when we try and fill it with stuff, we become like Solomon. Solomon in scripture uh, is the, the wealthiest man. Uh, the, he has more wisdom, more power, um, more, more money, more riches, um, more wives than he could ever possibly need or, or anyone could ever imagine. 
He had everything. He built things, he did things, he had all types of success. And as he looks and reflects on his life and all that he's achieved, he says in Ecclesiastes, it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. See, he understood that the things of this world are not going to satisfy, that we need something else. And so when we start realizing, okay, what is our need then? Our need is for God. Then the question becomes, well, how do we get to God? Because I want you to listen to the words of Job in Job chapter nine. He acknowledges the truth. Again, that as we think about this idea of Emmanuel, we need to remember he's struggling and he wants to have this conversation with God, but he says, he is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his, sorry, so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job cries out, I wish there was a mediator. I wanna to get to God, but, but he's too far away. There's this gap that I have with him. And he says, I, I would like to be with him, but I need someone who is like me, but who is also like God. I need someone who can stand in that gap and bring us together. And Job probably didn't realize but what he was crying out for. He's saying, I need Emmanuel. I need God with us. And this is what Isaiah is pleading for as well. In the verses that Dustin read for us, this is Isaiah's cry, his, his prayer to God. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. And so here Isaiah is saying, God, I can't get to you, but if you would split the heavens and step down, what a joy that would be. What a blessing that would be. He's asking God to descend down to us because we can't reach him. God, I need you to come and reach me instead. He says, if God's presence were here, if he were to step into this world, it would, it would change everything. He compares it to a fire, and this is not like a well-contained fire in a fire pit at a campsite. This is a fire that is ablaze, that a, a raging fire that cannot be contained, that sets everything in its path on fire, that even the water that comes in contact with it will not impact the fire, but instead the fire will make the water boil because it's that big, that hot, that powerful. And Isaiah knows this is what God's presence is like. That if God's presence were to enter into this world, it would change everything. He says, your enemies would know you. They would, mountains would quake before you. Now I like to think of this in, you know, in sports terms because all my enemies are really sports teams. Um, I'm a simple guy, okay? Like if the Kings can beat the Warriors on Tuesday, I'm gonna be happy about that, you know? Um, and, and so, you know, those are, those are my kind of enemies. But here's the thing. These are not the kind of enemies that we're talking about here. And as a matter of fact, there are some, some, some more real earthly enemies. And we actually see that this is a problem for the people of God in, in the time of Jesus, right? Because they expected the Messiah to come and to overthrow Rome, the Roman Empire, which really was this evil place that had come and, and, and held God's people captive, was oppressing their people. They thought, surely the Messiah is coming to defeat Rome. But the enemies that are going to truly be defeated are, are, are not earthly enemies. It's not flesh and blood that he's going to fight. But the enemy of sin, of death, and of the devil himself. Satan quakes at the name of Jesus. 
death and sin have no power over Christ. And so these are the enemies as he stepped into our world that he truly defeated on our behalf. And so it goes on to say, for when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And I love this because Isaiah just acknowledges this truth that, you know, if we were to, to create God in our minds, it wouldn't be this God. We'd probably create a God of power and of authority, but not a God who, who dwells with us. Or maybe we would create a weak God who dwells with us, but doesn't have the kind of power and authority that, that God really does. And so Isaiah is saying, you've done so many good things, God, and, and no one could come up with this. No one could dream this up. No one could fathom the, the depths and the riches of your goodness and your love. The idea that God wants to dwell with us, it's impossible to so many. As a matter of fact, I love the providence of God because this morning I was reading my Bible reading plan from Daniel chapter two. And in Daniel chapter two, the king comes uh, to, he brings all his wise men together and he says, hey, I had a dream and I need you to interpret it. And they say, okay, tell us what your dream was. He says, no, no, no. Because if I tell you, you're just gonna make up an interpretation. So what I want you to do is I want you to tell me what I dreamt and then interpret it for me. And the wise men say, wait, 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 that's not possible. We can't do that. No one can do that. And they actually say, let me just, let me just read this for you. They say in Daniel chapter two, they say in verse 11, what the king asks is too much, or it's, sorry, it's too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods and they do not live among humans. And so even in the time of Daniel, the wise men have gathered together and they're saying, what you need is an act of God, but God doesn't speak to people in that way. God can't dwell with man. That's crazy. There's no way you could experience that. And this is what Isaiah is pointing to, saying, God, you are unlike any other person, any other thing, anything that we could come up with. You're still better than all of it. And so then he says this in verse five. He says, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? And so here Isaiah acknowledges a truth that, yes, if we are to perfectly live out the law, then we can continue to live in relationship with God. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. And every time that we weigh ourselves against the law, we always find that we are going to come up short. And so Isaiah is saying, yes, if we could do good, then we'd be in your presence and that'd be wonderful. But when we sin and we all sin, we have a problem. And there's nothing that can pay for our sin. We, we, we can't do enough good. So how do we get to you? He actually says this in verse six. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So we might sit here and think, well, you know, I've done some good things. I come to church every week. I'm kind to my neighbors. I always say please and thank you. I, tithe, I actually tithe 12%, go above and beyond, right? And I'm always doing acts of kindness. I do so many good things. And Isaiah's saying all of that, it's like filthy rags. And we're not just talking about you did a little dusting around the house and the rag needs to be cleaned. 
This is talking about a rag that is thrown away and never touched again because that's how filthy and, and, and disgusting it is at this point. So saying your righteous acts, your, your attempts to get to God, they're always gonna come up short. He even says in verse seven, no one, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. In other words, our, our sinful state is so bad, it, it plagues so much of us that we can't even see God. So we think, well, we just wanna call on God and call on a savior and we can't even do that unless God does something for us to open up our heart, to open up our eyes, to see him so that we can call out to him, so that we can call for a savior. So God, we, we need you to reveal yourself to us so that we can call on you in our time of need for you. But our sins have, have separated so far from you that we can't even do that on our own. God, we need you to split the heavens and come down to us. That's what this whole section is all about. And then he says this in verse eight, he says, yeah, you Lord are our father. And so he acknowledges that God is a relational God that he has brought us into relationship with him. It says, we are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. It is God's work that saves. And so he cries out, do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. And so at the very beginning of this passage, Isaiah cries out, Lord, if you would step down from the heavens and come and be with us, things would be different. He says, left on our own, we are desperate for you and don't know how to get to you. But you, God, are a loving God. You are a relational God. You desire a relationship with us and you can do the work that can save us from our sins, that can bring us back into relationship with you. And so here we sit on the other side of Christ, knowing that what Isaiah longed for, we have already received that what Isaiah was asking for was Emmanuel, God with us, who would step down from glory, step down from his place in eternity, step down from his place in heaven to come and live a perfect life, to die a gruesome death so that our sins could be washed away because only through his sacrifice is our payment made. And Jesus came to be Emmanuel, to be God with us so that he could be the savior to bring us into perfect relationship so that through Christ, we know that we can have the gift of the Holy Spirit with us here and now, but also know that there is coming a day where we can be with God in eternity in glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Experiencing his presence perfectly like it was in Eden, it will be again. And so we look forward to that day. We long for that day, but we live today in light of the truth that God is with us, that he loves us and wants a relationship with us, that that longing that we have has been met in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. It's why we have this Advent season so that we can prepare our hearts to receive the greatest gift that any of us have ever received the gift of Jesus Christ. And so as we celebrate this year, let's reflect on that truth. And as we sing songs and worship, acknowledge the truth that really is behind them. 
As a matter of fact, one of my favorite songs, I just want to read the lyrics for you. It's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And here's what it says. It says, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. O come thou dayspring from on high and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. That's the cry of our hearts. That's our worship that we get to rejoice because we know that Emmanuel has come, that he is with us now and that he will come again to bring us home into perfect experience of God with us, of relationship with him for all of eternity. Let's pray. Oh, heavenly father, we give you thanks for who you are, for your goodness, for your glory, for your power, for your mercy and your grace. God, we give you thanks for the gift of your son, Jesus. God, we acknowledge that there's this longing in our heart that longs for something more, that we recognize as a longing for you. And we cry out like Job, recognizing that, God, without your work, we, we can't get to you. We need a mediator. We need a savior. We need you to step down from heaven to come and be with us. And God, you've already done that work. You've already accomplished all that needs to be accomplished. You've paid the price for our sins and offer us eternal life. And so for that, we give you thanks. God, we give you thanks that we can experience your presence here and now, that there's nowhere that we can go apart from you. That for those of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ, that your spirit dwells within us. And so we always have Emmanuel, God with us. But God, we look forward to that day where we will experience relationship with you in perfection. And so God, as we look forward to that day and prepare for that day, would our hearts be fully committed to you and would our lives be a light, a reflection of the hope that we have in Jesus so that others can see that truth and step into your presence and into relationship with you as well. God, would we freely offer the gift of your son to all those around us so that they can receive and enter into life with you as well. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.